So my name is Anissa Ramirez, and I'm a material scientist, and I've been a material scientist for a long time. I love science. I've loved science since I was a very, very young girl. Uh, one of the things that really turned me on to science was a television program called 321 Contact. And on that show, there was a repeating segment that had uh, African-American girl solving problems with her friends. And when I saw her, I saw my reflection. And I understand now as an adult why that passion for science, that seed, had to be embedded into me uh, very early and very deeply because there, my road to becoming a scientist was very, very bumpy. Although I was a top student or one of the top students in my high school and then went on to Brown to study material science and uh, went on to get my doctorate at, at Stanford, uh, the whole time I didn't see my reflection. I saw people who were equally as passionate about science, uh, but I, something, was very, something was missing in my journey. And particularly after I left and graduated from Brown, I made a promise to myself that I was going to make others' journeys through science easier than my own. And so I knew in my journey as being a scientist, there was also going to be another part where I was going to make other people feel included in this world of science. You, you know, C.P. Snow talks about the two cultures, and, and I love that book. Uh, you learn a little bit about these two, how to, the need for a bridge between two different communities. But there's another set of people who would like to be in that conversation, too, who want to feel included in the sciences or in the world of, of, of the mind. And so I'm very interested in reaching out to people who have, may have been felt excluded while uh, taking science or they had a bad experience or the way that science is presented is not interesting or resonates with them. And so I've spent a lot of my energies trying to get people more involved in this science enterprise. And I have to say that uh, in this journey of trying to make people feel included in science, the way that I went about it has, has evolved uh, I, I, like many scientists, did outreach where I would um, present different videos or different demonstrations about a material in, in specific. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I'm in material science, and so we have some of the best science demonstrations out there. Uh, we have metals that will change shape when you heat them and, and materials that when you warm them up, they generate electricity. We have a whole range of very, very cool demonstrations. And people really love these things. In fact, when I was at Yale, when I was a professor at Yale, I had a program for kids called Science Saturdays where I would do these demonstrations and also have lectures by professors. But what, I, what I've noticed over the years is that people were starting to see science as entertainment. And they weren't seeing it as a tool, as a lens to understand the world because the thing that scientists do is that we ask great questions. And, uh, and we need people who can interrogate and probe the world and, and so that they can develop their muscle of being critical thinkers. And I saw that missing, and I thought that I actually was becoming part of the problem of just showing science's entertainment with great demonstrations, blowing things up. But I was hooking them, but I wasn't doing the next step, which is to say, okay, this is the enterprise of science. It's a great way to understand the world, and with it, you can shape the world. So I've spent a lot of my energies recently thinking about how to get science to resonate with people, to make people who usually felt excluded to feel included. And I thought one of the best ways to do that was with stories. Um, I like to tell a lot of stories and, and share the impact of materials. 
And, and the reason why I've taken this approach is that there are many books about technology and science that I have, and they profile information and they lather people with lots of details. But what I've learned in my journey is actually story, stories are stickier. Uh, they allow people to be part of the journey and you just pepper in the science. You don't have to uh, wallop people with science. So in my evolution of trying to make people feel like science is for them, I've moved away from just profiling materials and showing their demonstrations to uh, putting them in a historical context uh, by showing little-known characters so that uh, people can resonate with these characters, maybe see their reflection, and also just feel more connected to the world. And I do this not because I'm solely in the business of uncovering uh, these people, but once people feel connected to science this way, then we have what we really need, which is them to feel more engaged so they can make ask questions, rather, about the future, ask about technologies that are pervading our, our lives in all different ways, and, and, and think critically about them. Uh, currently, we're largely overwhelmed by our technologies, and if you don't have a science background, you don't even feel like you have uh, the, the skill set to push back and to ask questions about them. But by telling stories of little-known inventors and of technologies that are quite old uh, and quite simple, such as the telegraph and the light bulb and simple things like that, people will see that if those simple things can change our lives, then these larger questions that we have, such as artificial intelligence and, and applications such as driverless cars, they will certainly change our lives too. And if people feel comfortable asking questions about simple technologies, I liken it to be a, a gymnasium where they're exercising that muscle, that critical thinking muscle with smaller weights. And if they continue to proceed, they'll be able to ask harder questions about the technologies that will shape our future. So, so the question that's, uh, that's on my mind is how do we make people feel more included in science and how do we prepare them to ask good questions about the future Working on a recent project, I learned about uh, the importance of time and how it has shaped culture. And many people, of course, will know that because of the clock, we became more obsessed with time and, and had a desire to be punctual. Uh, but what I learned, uh, and another way that I showed that, was with a story. I tell the story of a woman uh, from the 19th century. Her name was Ruth Belville. She had an unusual, unusual job. She was in the business of selling time. Uh, she would wake up early uh, in her home in Maidenhead, which was 30 miles outside of London, make her way over to London, and then make her way over to the Royal Observatory, which is where the precise time was. The whole time she was carrying with her a pocket watch, which she had nicknamed Arnold, and she would give her watch Arnold to the attendant, and the attendant would look at its time and compare it to their master clock. And then they would give her a certificate noting the difference between its time and her watch's time, then she'd make her way down the hill and then make her way over to London to different businesses that needed to know the time. Uh, businesses like banks and factories and newspapers needed to know the time, but also pubs needed to know the time too because they couldn't sell alcohol after set, set hours. Uh, this woman, Ruth, Ruth Belville, was known as the Greenwich Time Lady. Now, when I found her, I found her to be absolutely fascinating because she seemed like a character right out of a book written by Dickens. But she was true. And as a person who was trying to find ways for people to connect with science in new ways, she was also a great device because instead of just telling people, 
oh, as a society, we became more obsessed with time. I can just tell the story of Ruth Belville, who had a business on selling time. Uh, she provided a service for uh, a need, which is another way to just show that time became something that we were very, very keen on having, or knowing the time was something we were very keen on having. What's funny is that her family had been in this business of selling time for over a century. Her mother did this work. Her father started this business. Uh, but her father had many customers. He had about 200 customers. Her mother had about 100 customers. And Ruth, towards the end of her career, had about 50. And uh, why was there a demise or why was there a limitation in the number of customers? Well, it's because other technologies became folded into the world uh, that, that uh, diminished her customers, that diminished the number of customers that she had. Uh, services, time-providing services such as the telegraph and wireless or radio, we're, um, we're also providing ways for people to get the time. And so it didn't make sense for many businesses to, to have a subscription. So Ruth's uh, business uh, con was contracted because of these other technologies. But I actually think that Ruth had a business for much longer than uh, many might predict because once telegraphs were around and once uh, radio was around, she still had customers. And they valued Ruth because what she did is she also provided a human touch. See, Ruth was a very charming person. And as she walked around London, she would also talk to many businesses. So she would get kind of the word on the street about what was going on. And not only did she provide the time, but she would also provide news. And I think that's an important lesson because uh, even though she had an old technology of carrying a watch, uh, there's more to technology than just being faster, better, stronger. There's the humanity as well, which is important, which is what Ruth Belleville uh, represents. So uh, Ruth had this business for a very long time, and then eventually she, uh, she retired. She donated her watch uh, to a London museum. You can actually see it in the, uh, London muse the Science Museum in London on the second floor, which I saw and stood there for about 20 minutes in awe of Arnold, which is the name of the watch. And, uh, and then uh, she actually passed away and, um, about in 1943, but uh, she was, that was the end of the, the time distribution service provided by foot. I've been thinking hard about how to express to people around me how important timekeeping was to society. And time is very nebulous. Um, and if you read books about it, it will range uh, in the topics from the mechanics of a clock to the more esoteric to physics of, of Einstein's theories. And I was looking for a way to explain time to people in a way that I don't have to show them a mechanical clock or I don't have to explain Einstein's theories. And so one of the ways that I thought was a great way to demonstrate this was through music. It ends up that when you listen to music, your sense of time changes. Uh, not music such as classical music, but music such as jazz. Jazz breaks all the rules. Sometimes you play a little faster, sometimes you play a little slower it ends up that your brain actually keeps time by physical cues. And so when you're listening to music such as jazz, you kind of lose your sense of time. And so uh, what I was trying to impress upon people when I discussed this is that we are the time we keep. Although we make these very beautiful watches with great precision and some of them are quite expensive, our brains actually don't keep time by a second. 
Our brains keep time by the physical cues that are around us, and our brains keep time by the shape of our memories. Uh, and when I say shape of our memories, you can think of it this way. Our brain has a hard disk. And so as we live our life, information is stored on that hard disk. But when we are in uh, terror, when we're experiencing terror, a second hard disk is activated and more information gets stored. Let's say that we're in a car accident. We start remembering information like the person on the expression on the other person's face and how things are crumpling and, and, and the sounds. That moment where we're in the middle of the crash, it seems like forever. It ends up that all that information is stored and your brain actually recalls that information. And because there's so much information stored, it actually senses that event as a very, very long event. So uh, what I was trying to show is that there's a difference between the clock and our body's clock. And sometimes they're aligned and sometimes they're not in sync. And, uh, and we actually should honor that as a society and, and not trying to make ourselves clocks. We're not mechanical. We're not robots. We're humans. And at the end of the day, we should honor how our bodies actually operate. One of the things that's been very interesting to me as a scientist, the narrative that we use is, I create this, period. And I've been thinking a little, I've been thinking a little bit about this, and I think actually that period needs to be changed to a comma, and it needs to be, I created this, comma, and then this recreated me in some way. We're in a dance with the tools that we make. We're in the dance, we're in a dance with the technologies that we create. And this is something that we need to share with our younger generations, uh, because we can't just think that what we do is isolated from the world, from his history. Everything is connected. And it's that complexity that actually makes things fascinating. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this in materials. When, when I share with students the impact of materials, I, I say, you know, sometimes there's unintended consequences. Sometimes there's surprises. Sometimes uh, technology can go awry. As for surprises, uh, what I like to explore is copper and how it is used in copper communication cables for the telegraph. Now, the telegraph, as many know, was created by Samuel F. B. Morse. Samuel F. B. Morse was a painter, and he may seem like an unlikely person to create a telegraph, but the telegraph actually came from tragedy. Uh, you see, he was painting one of the best commissions of his life. He knew that his, his career was about to be launched, and he's doing this work in Washington, D.C., and he's writing a letter home to New Haven and expressing to his wife all the wonderful things that he's experiencing. Um, he sends a letter to his wife. He ends it with, um, I, I long to hear from you. He knows that it's going to take about two weeks before he hears back because it takes about uh, five days to get to New Haven and then five days back. About three days later, he actually gets a letter back. It's from his father, also in New Haven, and he says that his wife had died. So, as you can imagine, this man was very, very heartbroken, and he would want to be a person who would cr want to create an instant way to communicate. So he made the telegraph. Now, when he was starting to make his telegraph, he would, he would work with his assistant, Alfred Vail. Uh, they had devised a set of dots and dashes, a Morse code, if you will, to transmit, transmit information. And so each letter of the alphabet would be converted to a range of dots and dashes, and then the person on the other end would receive those dots and dashes, and then they would convert them to letters of the alphabet and then create words and sentences and the like. Um, Morse and Vail were of the tradition of long, of long letters, and so Vail would write a very long letter, and Morse would have to 
translate all those dots and dashes, and Morse is getting a little annoyed. And so in one letter that he wrote to Vale when they were working in separate locations, he told him to condense your language. What he was telling him is to, to remove words that don't add to the meaning of the message. Because, you know, translating something like uh, dots and dashes and it ending up being the word the is really a pain. So remove the words the and uh, and let's start to use a compression of words, such as instead of understanding, let's use UN, and instead of B, BE, let's just use the letter B. And let's create a whole, a whole shorthand, sort of like we do today with our technologies. So that was Morse telling Vale to condense your language. It ends up that the telegraph became part of the American fabric, and telegraph offices were all over the world, all over the country, and uh, they would tell their customers that you're welcome to use the system, but you have to be brief. And the reason why that was is because the telegraph was fantastic in sending information across the country, but it had a shortcoming, meaning that it could not handle many messages at a time. And these telegraph officers wanted to keep the lines free for other, for other customers. So people had to send messages, but they had to be brief. And these offices uh, encouraged that because they had a flat rate for 10 words, and then each word was one-tenth that rate. And people wanted to economize, so they wanted to send their messages very cheaply, and so they would send very, very short messages. Now, the Telegraph soon became part of newspapers, and newspapers would tell, uh, newspaper editors would tell their reporters to be succinct for the same reason. Again, the Telegraph was a wonderful way to send news across the country, but it still had that limitation. Now, there was one reporter who really loved this style of short declarative sentences that were that was the newspaper star. And he was the author, Ernest Hemingway. So here's a surprise. Uh, Morris had the intention of creating a fast way to communicate that was, that was forged from his own heartbreak. And in the process, he developed an invention that actually shapes the way that Americans speak. So here is a surprise. So um, I actually think, again, that we create tools, but those tools in turn shape us. And here's a surprise of how that happened. The desire for instant communication actually shaped the thing that it was containing, and that is language. So that's one example that I like to share with people. Another example that I like to share is unintended consequences that happen as a result of materials, um, material inventions. And uh, a good case study for that is the light bulb. Now, as many know, when you look at American textbooks, you will see the inventor to be Thomas Edison. We all know that that is not true. There are many other inventors that predate his work. But he created a way to light uh, our world using an incandescent bulb. And, and in his technology, he had a small uh, piece of metal or a small thread where he heated it up electrically and, or heated it up resistively and it warmed up and as a result, it glowed. And once he created his light bulb, we soon had an overabundance of light. Well, how has that shaped us? Well, it ends up that it shaped the uh, human world significantly. Edison did not know this at the time, but it ends up that humans actually have two modes. We have a daytime mode and we have a nighttime mode. In our daytime mode, we have an increase in temperature, metabolism, and the amount of growth hormone in our bodies. In our nighttime mode, all of those values decrease. How our body knows what mode to be in, daytime or nighttime, has to do with the lights. It, it ends up that in our eye, in, in the retina, 
there's a special photoreceptor that we've just learned about in the last 30 years or so that doesn't contribute to vision, but is essentially a detector to determine or to detect blue light. When it detects blue light, it sends a message to the brain, to another part of the brain, to shut off melatonin, which is a chemical compound which tells all of the cells in our bodies to be in nighttime mode. So when it is shut off, we enter into daytime mode. So when, uh, when Edison was alive, people had, people had different types of light. Uh, uh, in, in fact, the generation before him, they lived by sunlight and then they lived by candlelight. Sunlight has a lot of blue light, and so our ancestors were in daytime mode. And as the sun set, they would uh, use candlelight. That type of light is redder, and so they would be in nighttime mode. But you and I live under artificial lights most of the time, and they generate, they generate a lot of blue light. And as a result of that, we are in daytime mode most of the time until we go to sleep. So what are the repercussions of that? Well, it ends up that if our bodies are swimming in growth hormone, we will respond to that overstimulation and our, our cells will grow. One scientist told me at the uh, National uh, Institute of Health that we are actually taller than our ancestors. Now, there are many contributing factors to that, of course, uh, better nutrition, cleaner water, uh, better medicines, uh, less war. But another factor are artificial lights. Uh, another impact of that is that if you have if you have your cells swimming in growth hormone, uh, well, they're going to respond, and they may respond in ways that we don't want. And it ends up that there are there are uh, study there there have been studies that have been done on animals, and they've subjected them to different types of artificial light. And what they have found is that they had an increase in obesity, cardiovascular disease, and some forms of cancer. Now, these studies can't be done on humans because that's unethical. It's not ethical, but we have seen that there are a, there there is a population of people who have an increase in again cardiovascular disease, obesity, and some forms of cancer, and it has to do when they work. They work at night, so surgeons and security guards that work under artificial lights—that is, people who work at times other than nine to five—are being impacted by the lights. So here's an un unintended consequence when. Inventors such as Edison and, and all the others were creating their incandescent lights. They had, the intention, they had the intention to push back the darkness, which was an admirable feat. But we now have to deal with uh, the out. We now have to deal with the unintended consequence as a result of their invention. And so, what we know now is that there is a linkage between our bodies and the light. And so in order to weigh, uh, live in a healthy way with the lights, uh, what we can do is we can actually change our lights to, kind of, to emulate what our ancestors used to do. Our ancestors used to live with the sun, which was blue light, and they used to live uh, in the evenings with a redder light due to candlelight. So in our modern day, uh, we, can get sun, we can get blue light from sunlight. We can also get it from blue LEDs and compact fluorescent bulbs. And during the course of the day, as the sun sets, we actually need to change to a redder light so that we can enter into nighttime mode. We also need to change our devices and our computers so that they are in nighttime mode because they generate a lot of blue light. So here's just a case of how we create a technology and that technology can in turn shape us. If I were to think about people I admire in the sciences, people I want to emulate, and it's a lot of scientists that have made that bridge over into writing. And I can see that now. I, I couldn't see that at the time, but 
there were there were a few books that were very very precious to me and, and some authors that were very precious to me and one that I actually got to meet and I wrote an essay about it because I was just it was just such an important day so uh growing up uh I, I loved Asimov I loved what he did in terms of how he explained things I had a very thick book called Understanding Physics and why would a child want a book called <laughs> Understanding Physics but he made it so relatable and, and it was one of those ex occasions where I would I said you you can do that. You you can explain science this way, this clearly, because science usually was a little bit more um, cloudy in 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 the description. So I really loved Asimov. It's one thing to know your field really really well, and I I admire people. I I worked at Bell Laboratories, and across the hall from me was a Nobel laureate. So I admire people like that. I want to hang out with them. But it's also I also admire people who can explain it so that someone who's a non-scientist can get it. That's also genius. And those are the people that I admire. So I definitely loved uh, Asimov. I, I got to meet Alan Lightman. And when I read Einstein's Dreams, and I think that was in 92 or 93, it was one of those books where I put it aside and I said, I didn't know you can do that. I don't know how he did that. I'm going to learn as much as I can so I can get to that level uh, to explain my field, which is material science, so that people will feel will have this kind of feeling. It was just amazing. And it's a very thin book, but it's it's beautiful. And it's also beautifully written. So I knew that I also wanted to be a beautiful I wanted to write beautifully as well. Um, and I actually made an attempt to to write something similar. I, I can't say that it worked out, but again, he inspired me because uh, he just it was a it was a paradigm shift. I'm like, I didn't know you can write science that way that it's almost poetic so I enjoyed his work there are so many students that I talk to that uh, when they say they want to write something uh, they say well you know we scientists don't write very well and I said hey stop right there because first of all uh, that's not something I think we should honor I think we should fix that if that's the truth and there are so many examples of people who do write well. Um, you know, when I wrote my journal papers, I made them as beautiful as possible um, because you, you, you have to economize your words. You don't have very much space. And each sentence has to do things. And that, you know, as a, as a writer, it's the same thing. Your sentences have to do things. In, in, in a science paper, you need to pack as much information as possible. Uh, but when you're writing a book or any other endeavor, uh, each sentence has to make you want to read the next sentence, so it has to do something. So, um, so I push back when people say scientists aren't good writers. I think scientists need to to fix that. I, I'm, but I've been spoiled because I've interfaced with a lot of scientists that are great writers. One of the writers that absolutely moved me was was Primo Levi, and his book, The Periodic Table. Uh, when I read it, and I was in my twenties, I was so moved by it. Uh, not only because the writing is beautiful. And it's talking about very, very hard things. Uh, but it's so brilliant in comparing something that we've been looking at for so, t so long as a scientist, the periodic table, and seeing that it's an analogy for life. I, I can't get enough of that book. As I uh, mentioned, like, my path to becoming a scientist was that I found, I found my love for science at a very, very early age. And so I was unstoppable. And I was very passionate about it. And I actually did science experiments at home. I actually enlisted my grandmother to do science experiments with me. So you have to create that bubble. Uh, because sure, the world may not be pro-science, and there may be a lot of people who aren't like you or aren't thinking about science. But if, all, if you have a space where you can do science and thrive, so uh, that, that's what you need.
And so I would tell parents, if you have a child who loves science, and you may not be, you, if, if the parent is not comfortable with science, the first thing they have to do is that they have to figure out how to remove that fear of science because your child is an antenna and will pick it up. And so one way to do that is, uh, you know, the next time something breaks, clear the dining room table, put a towel on top, take that thing apart, and take the posture, I don't know, let's find out together, because that is what scientists do. And you can't be in the posture of where you're the sage on the stage and you know everything. Those days are gone and they probably really didn't exist, but we all can be in the posture where we're asking questions, and that's what we need in the 21st century more than ever. So if we can have children asking questions and, we, and they don't stop asking questions, we've prepared them as well as we can to succeed in the 21st century. So that is, you know, you nurture their curiosity, encourage their curiosity. Instead of asking, what did you learn today? Ask them, what question did you ask today? See, that focuses on the desire to be curious uh, instead of uh, on the content no one's ever going to learn everything, but but the asking of a question is the act that we want to encourage. And uh, I was just very fortunate. I was a a kid. I didn't you know I didn't live in a I didn't have a uh, wealthy parents, but they knew that I loved science. Uh, when I took things apart, they knew that it wasn't coming from a point where I was trying to be mischievous, but that I was curious. They've always nurtured that curiosity. If I if there was a museum to go to or if there was a uh, event going on that might be science related, we went. And uh, you just need to create that bubble, that science bubble. And so I feel very fortunate that uh, my parents, they, they got that and they supported that.